0: After that, I hate to disappoint you because I'm no superhero. As a matter of fact, um, Anthony Trollope, the Victorian author, once said in his book, Barchester Towers, only the preacher can compel people to sit still and be tortured. (laughs) I, I, in fact, know this isn't true. We professors do a far better job of it. We hold grades over students' heads. You, you were told about my books. My academic books, the only people who buy them are anesthesiologists. They found they're cheaper to prescribe than the drugs, they hold people in a deeper sleep longer, and they have no memory of the painful experience of having read the book. A matter of fact, I think my students think I have the gift of healing, I cure insomniacs. But I was asked this morning to speak about one of the greatest heroes of the faith, John the Baptist. And yet we encounter him in this text I'm going to read to you at a moment of crisis in his life, in a moment of struggle, a moment of vulnerability. Jesus has been healing people. He's been preaching. Crowds are coming to him. In the meantime, John, who had this great public ministry, has been arrested by Herod. He's languishing in a prison, and his disciples report to him all the things that are happening with Jesus. And the text said, John's disciples told him about all these things. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect something else? You hear the vulnerability? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. No one born of a woman was greater. And yet he was a struggler like you and me. I I, I wanna contextualize the story a little bit. I I think the Bible is filled with people who could have introduced themselves in some sort of a recovery group. Uh, Maybe to explain why that was a surprise to me, I have to give you a little background. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. We went to a church. There was only one person in the church that had a college education. These were well-meaning people, hard-working class people. But there was a lot of misinformation disseminated at that church. In a Sunday school class as a boy, I was told if I went to a movie and Jesus came back while I was in the theater, I'd go straight to hell. I I, I desperately wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog. (laughs) But I didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see And when the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came down and asked my mom if my brothers and I could go with her boys to see the shaggy dog, I'm not embellishing this one bit, this actually happened. I'm looking at my mother with ambivalence. I wanna go on the one hand, I'm afraid to go on the other. And my mother said, yes, we could go. (laughs) I began to have grave doubts about her love for me. (laughs) Why would she put my life in such eternal peril? I was told in Sunday school class, if I lived a holy and righteous life all my life, but had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. What I deduced from that was if I could lose a relationship with God based on what I did, I had to gain a relationship with God based on what I did, and I saw nothing of the cross or what Christ did for me there in that whole equation. I figured I was destined for hell. I had a little window of opportunity. I would just sort of make the most of it while I could. But after several years of living like that, all I was doing was hurting myself, hurting those around me, and I was in complete existential despair when I went to college. My my older brother was a Christian. He invited me to a meeting, and I heard the gospel for the first time, that the God of the universe knew me and loved me and forgave me of all my sins. I don't know one person who's lived one moment of honest life without longing to be loved unconditionally. God's love is ontological. That means it is essential to his character. It is not improved by my well-doing. It is not diminished by my poor doing. And I don't know one person who's lived one honest moment who's unaware of the fact that we're messed up. We believe in the high ideal of love, but we've had sharp words of people we say we love most. We believe in justice, but we catch ourselves in moments when we're unfair. And here now is this great good news. The God of the universe loves us and forgives us. I was so moved by it, I have never stopped being grateful for it. And I started reading my Bible to find out more about it. And having grown in an environment where people expected perfection that we couldn't give, I had assumed everybody in the Bible was perfect. And now I find all these flawed characters could have introduced themselves in a recovery group hi my name is Noah I'm a drunk hi my name is Abraham I, I I'm a liar and, and a coward I would tell a lie that would put my wife's life at risk rather than risk anything myself hi we're Isaac and Rebecca and we're dysfunctional parents hi my name's Jacob I'm a cheater and a scoundrel Hi, my name is Miriam. I'm very jealous of my little brother Moses, and I'm a racist. I'm upset about his interracial marriage. Hi, my name is Aaron, and I'm a religious leader, but I cave to peer pressure constantly. Hi, my name's Moses. I'm a hothead and a murderer. Hi, my name's Samson. I struggle with lust. Hi, my name's Naomi, and I'm bitter. Hi, my name's David. I'm an adulterer and a murderer. Hi, my name's Solomon. I'm supposed to be wise, but I'm given to great intemperance. Hi, my name's Elijah, and I struggle with depression. Hi, my name's Peter, and I let down my best friend at a time he needed me most. Hi, my name's Thomas. I struggle with doubts. Hi, my name's Paul. I'm a Christian killer, and I'm really hard to work with. (laughs) And as I began to look at these people, they were the heroes of the faith, but all of them were flawed. I didn't think that their heroics were rewards for their flaws, but neither were their failures unrelated to their well-doing. Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians 2.9. He says that God's power is perfected. That is, it comes to maturity in the context where people recognize their weakness and discover that God's grace is sufficient for them. Anne Lamott, in her novel, All New People, had some interesting insights. It's a coming-of-age novel of a young girl growing up in Marin County, California. Uh, She's raised in some conflictual situation. Her mother's supposed to be a Christian, but she's kind of crusty. The father is a womanizer, and here's a girl trying to discover her identity in that context. Um, The mother always has these adages And one time, the mother would say, for example, you got to live in the solution, not in the problem. Well, there's a place in the book where they're discussing the topic of grace, the mother says, that's like asking, what sound does a one-hand clap make? And the daughter responds and says, oh, the Japanese have a proverb, what sound does rain make? And their answer is, it doesn't make any sound unless it hits something, an umbrella, a hat, a puddle. And the reader's left right there. The discussion goes no further. And we have to kind of fill the loop. Well, what sound does grace make then? And basically, it doesn't make a sound unless it hits something. A broken heart? And a strange relationship? Some temptation we're having troubles getting over? Well, let's look at John the Baptist as one of these flawed heroes and see what we might gather from his life as we seek to make sense of our own. First off, there's there's something so unique about John the Baptist. There was the uniqueness of his birth in his early life. Matter of fact, his parents were very old. Zacharias, his father, was a priest. Uh, His mother, Elizabeth, was beyond childbearing years. She was barren. His father was performing duties in the temple. And the angel, Gabriel, shows up. And tells him he and his wife are going to have a son. The very one predicted in the book of Isaiah. Who would come before the coming of the Messiah. Prepare the way for him and be a voice pointing people to him. He would fulfill the prophecies uttered at the very end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. He would be the one like Elijah who would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of children to their fathers. Zacharias just can't believe it. He says... Come on, give me a sign about this. For his disbelief, Gabriel says, you will not utter a word until your child is dedicated. Sure enough, he's silenced. But when finally John is born and Zacharias' mouth is opened and his tongue is loosed, all he can speak about is the Messiah who's coming, Jesus there was not only the uniqueness of his birth, but the uniqueness of his life. He was raised as a Nazarite. That, that was a sect within Judaism where he never had a haircut like Samson in the Old Testament till Delilah got hold of him. Never had a haircut. Never tasted alcoholic beverage. Always ate locusts and wild honey. Lived it as, as an ascetic in the desert. Uh, he had a unique life. But he also had a unique calling, and it's mentioned for us in Luke chapter three, verses one and two. It says, "In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was a tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness." In the midst of all the political and ecclesiological pomp and circumstance, the Word of God comes to John in the wilderness. A unique birth, a unique life, a unique calling. But there's no reason to suppose that each of us is less uniquely called, though the calling may not be quite as dramatic. I I have 12 grandchildren. The oldest just turned six. There's a 13th that's to be born next month. I look like I might have 13 grandchildren. Children always come up to me and tell me what they want for Christmas. <laughs> my wife, on the other hand, she doesn't look like she's even old enough to have children. She's, she's, she's just two years younger than me, but she's absolutely beautiful. As a matter of fact, she's also very nearsighted, and that was to my advantage when I dated her. <laughs> With all these grandchildren, we're always having to decide, so what do we do this Christmas, make the house payment or buy the grandchildren presents? And we've decided we're going to move into a tent. (laughs) The thing is, of those grandchildren, there are two who are twins, Soren and his sister Briley. And when they were born, the doctor said, there's an anomaly here. Briley is two weeks younger than Soren, And when my daughter-in-law conceived Sorin, she ovulated after conception and two weeks later conceived again a second child. Is that odd or what? It's unique. I've heard about it from other people and there's some doctors that confirm that this happens on rare occasion. And I started thinking, wow, God must have really wanted Briley in this world. But think about it, from a mathematical perspective, given the number of possible cells that might have connected at the moment of your conception, the odds are against any of you being here mathematically. Yet from what the Bible says, each of you were uniquely made and anticipated and wanted, called for purposes designed by God. Creation implies intention. We saw the Potter on the film. Every time a potter throws clay on a wheel, that potter has in mind exactly what what he or she wants to do with that clay, like a cup, a vase, a pitcher. No, God had plans for you, unique plans. Before you were made, he called you for unique service. We see it in a pattern in the scriptures. God created light on day one in the book of Genesis, but he doesn't create the luminaries to emit light until day four god had plans for you before he ever created you you do you remember at the end of the clinton administration the debacle that took place in washington dc and we watched it for about nine months on tv i i i don't rightly care right now if you were to the right of that issue or to the left of that issue I just want you to go and think back in your minds about the newspapers during that time. I I remember watching them. If if the newspaper was left of center, they would show a picture of the president, bright smile, looked very engaging, tie just tied perfectly. And they would show the independent prosecutor, and he looked like a doofus. His glasses were half-cocked, his face was contorted, his tie was out of sync. If you looked at a paper that was to the right of center, The independent prosecutor looked engaging, uh, winsome, and the President looked like a doofus. And I thought to myself, how do those photographers keep their jobs if the best they can get is a doofus shot out of the thousands that they take? Then it dawned on me, nope, somebody was making an editorial comment. Those pictures were selected of all the pictures that were taken. With that in mind, let me ask you this question. Why do you have the color eyes you have? Why do you have the facial features you have? Why are you the height you are, the weight you are? Um, Why are you an extrovert or an introvert? If we charted you on a Myers-Briggs, why would you come out with the profile you do instead of some other profile? Why were you born in the birth order where you were born? Or an only child if that was the case? Uh, Why were you born into privilege or why were you born into liabilities? Why were you born to live today instead of 400 years ago or 200 years from now? People, people, somebody was making an editorial comment. Somebody wanted you here for purposes he had designed. It was Oscar Wilde who said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. (laughs) Peter preached to thousands at Pentecost. Philip bore faithful witness to one Ethiopian eunuch on a desert road, yet each served by design. Maybe you're here sitting in the congregation this morning with a heart full of questions. Maybe you're sitting here in the congregation eager to share with somebody some of the answers you've been discovering in Christ. You may be sitting right next to each other. Maybe that too is a calling and you can have a great conversation after the service is over. But let's return to John the Baptist. Unique birth, unique early life, unique calling. He also had a unique ministry. This was a man who was courageous. Courage could be defined as the habit or the habitual ability to suffer pain and hardship. It's endurance. It's fortitude. It's staying power. Courage is the ability to say yes to right action even in the teeth of pain. John the Baptist called out against religious abuse, hypocrisy, and pretense. When the Pharisees came to him, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? We wouldn't call that friendship evangelism, I don't think. He did not mince words, nor did he cave to peer pressure. Yet he never lost control in these incidences and gave thoughtful, particular instruction to those who came to him. People were coming to him asking specifically, it says in Luke 6, what should we do? What's expected of us if we bring hearts of repentance to Christ? The crowd said, what should we do? And he says, if you have two tunics and you see your brother has none, give the other guy one. The tax collector said, what should we do? He said, don't collect more than you ought to collect. To the soldiers and law enforcement people who said, what should we do? He said, be just. Don't accept bribes, be content. Revealed in this particular instruction in this unique ministry is a kind of temperance also as well as courage. Temperance can be understood as a habitual ability to resist the enticement of immediate pleasure in order to gain the greater though more remote good. If courage says yes to right action in the teeth of pain, temperance says no to wrong action, even in the jaws of pleasure. Temperance is a mark of maturity. My children, when they were young, I I recognized they needed to learn temperance. They would have sold their souls for candy. (laughs) Uh, My wife, Claudia, was sick. And one evening I said, don't worry, Claudia, I'll take care of the dinner, I've got it all covered, but I'm totally incompetent in the kitchen. But I had some cans of chunky chicken noodle soup and I made him up some chunky chicken noodle soup and Jeremy was the oldest. We only had three children born at that time. I gave him a Papa bear portion. I gave Alicia, my daughter, a mama bear portion and Grady was still in the high chair. I just gave him a baby bear portion. I told him you can eat your chicken noodle soup and then get a popsicle and eat it out on the front porch. I took a tray up to my wife. I said, Claudia, everything's under control. Don't worry about a thing. I've got it covered. Here's some soup for you. Gave her a kiss. I came down the stairs. It had been a minute max that I had been away from the kitchen. And I saw Jeremy and Alicia running out to the front porch with their popsicles in hand. I didn't think twice about it because I made such a brilliant dinner, you know. I go in the kitchen and I look. Jeremy's bowl is completely empty, Alicia's bowl is completely empty grady's bowl is piled high (laughs) oh i could tell you so many stories about the compromises they made of any kind of moral purity in order to just get sweets (laughs) i would sometimes bring them candy home when i would come home from work you know that butterscotch candy with the yellow cellophane wrapper on it that penny candy They'd say, "Dad, do you have anything for us?" I say, "Yeah, I've got this penny candy, but I, I want to, set forth a proposition for you." I said, "Yeah, what's that?" I said, "You can have this penny candy right now, or if you refuse it, I'll take you to Toys R Us tomorrow and buy you a toy for ten dollars." They all took the candy. <laughs> My work was cut out for me, but one by one, there came the time when each one learned to take the toy the next day. And this temperance is evidence at least in John's ministry, not only because he calls out hypocrisy, but he's in control, and he's not taking advantage of his situation. He, his temperance was revealed in his humility and honesty. He lived in days of expectation, it said in Luke chapter 3. People asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the one that we're hoping in and looking for? And he could have stepped in and assumed some role that he was unqualified for. He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet Moses wrote about? No, I am not. Are you Elijah, who is to come? He said, no, I am not. And when they said, who are you? He said, I'm just a voice. You don't even see a voice. And after being told that everyone was leaving him to follow Jesus, John responded, That's how it should be. That's how it should be. He must increase and I must decrease. Such courage, such temperance, such virtuous service for Christ, guarded by real humility and honesty. John was a hero of the faith, yet circumstances turned against him, and he, like any of us might do in those situations, struggled. he was arrested and imprisoned. He was unafraid to speak the truth in the public square, like the boy in Hans Christian Andersen's, The Emperor Has No Clothes. He said the things that everybody else was afraid to speak, even though it was obvious. He spoke against sin, even when it occurred in high places. He called Herod out for his scandalous life, and he was arrested And after all of his success and the evidence of the presence of Christ in his life, with all of his unique birth, life, calling, and ministry, he sits in a prison cell and struggles with doubts. Did he put the ladder of his life up against the wrong wall? He calls his disciples to him. And he says, I want you to go ask Jesus, are you the guy? Are you the guy who's the answer to the deepest longing of our heart? Are you the guy who could fulfill our hopes and our expectations? When those disciples come to Jesus, he answers them with a demonstration. He speaks to lepers, and their leprous, ulcerated skin becomes smooth as new baby skin. He speaks in the blind see and the deaf hear. He casts out demons. He preaches the gospel with clarity and no ambiguity. And then Jesus tells John's disciples after this demonstration to go back and tell John what they have seen and heard, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. And blessed is the man who does not fall away On account of me, I'm sure there were no insomniacs cured that day. All eyes were open, ears were listening and attentive, and all marveled, marveled at Jesus. A quick aside here. Some people wonder if the role of the church is to redress wrongs and set right injustices in the culture. Or if the role of the church is to preach the gospel without ambiguity, and make clear what Jesus did at Calvary. People, Jesus didn't have any problem keeping these two things together. And it seems as we read about his ministry, the whole question is like asking which wing of an airplane is more important, the right one or the left one. He held it together. But when John's disciples leave, Jesus uses John's life to teach those around him. And what does he teach from John's life? And this is instructive for us. Number one, I would suggest you, he makes it clear you don't have to be afraid when doubts arise. They're liable to come. The greatest born of a woman had them. Don't you be afraid when questions percolate in your heart. Why, I, I actually believe this. If you don't have any doubts or questions about your faith, you've achieved some level of delusion the reason why I believe that is because God's really big. Remember Lucy in the Narnian Chronicles? She says the Christ figure, Aslan the lion in those books, Aslan you're bigger. He said, no, child, I'm not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. That means if we haven't yet achieved full understanding of God, there's going to be some questions. We're small. We're pea brains. The Widener Library at Harvard University has 19 million volumes under that one roof. Who's read them all? Forget that. Have you read all the books at your local Barnes & Noble? Forget that. Have you read all the books on your own shelves back at home in your library at home? We make judgments all the time, but we're so uninformed. We are basically pea brains, and we're before a big God in a complex world. We shouldn't be surprised if questions come. And also, we're fallen and broken, and the filters of our understanding are kind of gunked up and often clogged. I think questions could be fully compatible with a robust faith. I remember one year, one of the fathers of one of my students came up to me and said, so Jerry, how's your soul? I like the question. It gets pretty deep pretty quick. And I said to this man taking stock, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if I've ever had more questions about my faith than I have right now. And he had this horrified look on his face as if to suggest, I hope my son gets in no more of your classes at Wheaton College ever again. When I saw the consternation on his face, I didn't think that was commensurate with what I meant, but I felt the burden to clarify. I said, listen, sir, I don't think in my life I've ever felt more loved by God than I feel right now. I don't think in my life I've ever felt more in love with God than I feel right now. I feel like a child in a perfectly safe relationship before a parent or a grandparent whom he or she knows loves him. And that child does what? Asks gazillions of questions all the time and never sees that the questions are compatible with feeling loved. Answers may be forthcoming or answers may not, but he trusts the one who has the answers until the day comes. We had one of our grandchildren in the car with us as we were driving up to see our daughter and his cousins up in Milwaukee. That drives an hour and 45 minutes, but I can't do the higher math to account for the number of questions he was able to ask in an hour and 45 minutes. We don't see these as incompatible with children who feel love. Why should we feel that questions in our soul and heart are incompatible with feeling loved by God? What's happened to our subculture that we don't see the compatibility of these things? Also, I think that John's life and Jesus' teaching afterwards helps us to recognize that we don't have to be afraid of these questions when they come at all. I I remember uh, when I started sharing my faith as a new Christian, I was amazed at the questions people were asking. I had never in my life asked the question, till after I was a Christian sharing my faith, I had never asked the question, if God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe? I've since written a book on that, but I never asked the question till I heard it asked. And what did I do? At that moment, I said to the person who asked it, that's a really interesting question. And I started digging to try and find out answers for that person. And I started growing. And there are some wonderful answers there. We don't get a last word on it, but you could have a sure word. Even the truths you know can still be plumbed deeper, and they could be applied to questions you haven't even thought of asking yet. I learned not to be afraid of questions like, What about other religions? How do we know the Bible is really the word of God? What do we do with Jesus' statement that he's the only way to God? And as I started digging and finding marvelous, marvelous answers to these things, I learned I didn't have to be afraid. And in the midst of my struggle, I could see that that struggle could be compatible with robust and growing faith. John looked to Jesus when he struggled and had questions. He sent his disciples to find out answers. I I, I remember when Claudia and I were on our honeymoon, we were married 40 years ago, we were in San Francisco. And we decided to do what you do in San Francisco. We got on the trolley car and I'm holding my bride's hand. But it was rush hour and more and more people got on that trolley car and the pressure of all those people getting on it started pushing us further and further away. And finally, I'm seeing that I'm about eight feet from my bride. I thought, this is crazy to let that pressure push us away. I just sort of swam through the crowd, and I threw my arms around Claudia. And now the more people that got on that trolley car, they just pushed us closer together. And I thought, this is okay. What do the pressures do? John, it drove him to Jesus. I hope that we learn from that also implied in what Jesus taught is don't be afraid even in the face of difficult circumstances when Paul was in prison he wrote to the church at Philippi my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel that's kind of strange isn't it he could have been in prison and he could have been bitter he could have said Lord I'm the guy that when he went to Thessalonica they said the people who have turned the world upside down have come here When I was in Ephesus teaching in the school of Tyrannus for two years, everybody in Asia Minor heard the gospel. Is this a good use of your resource to put me in prison here? In fact, he didn't worry about that. He trusted that his circumstances were orchestrated by God. And he started witnessing to the praetorian guards next to him. Said his imprisonment was known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. And when he concludes his letter to the Philippi, the church at Philippi, he says, the saints in Caesar's household greet you. How was it that he had his finger on the pulse of what was going on in the Roman Empire at that time? Because he recognized that his circumstances, even when they seemed difficult, were from God. I remember two different times in my life, men came to me and said, Jerry, you've got to pray for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just miserable. I'm the only Christian at my place of work, and I am miserable. you got to pray for me. I said, okay. Put my hand on both cases, put my hand on their shoulders. I said, Lord, look at the misery of my poor brother. And please, please, get him out of his misery. Take him home to heaven today. <laughs> In both cases, they knocked my hand off their shoulders. They said, what are you praying? I said, well, there's a couple ways you could look at this. You could look at this like you're just miserable and you're just taking up space on this earth or you could say, wow, I'm the only Christian at my place of work. I must be so strategically placed. Lord, open my eyes to see your call on my life at this place. Help me to see why you have me here and help me to live faithful to that call. I think we could do this. John's life speaks to us, whatever our present circumstances uh, and whatever complexities might be revealed beyond our present grasp to understand them, God's there. I want you for a moment to think of the worst thing that ever happened to you in your life. Now think of the next one. Now think of the next one. Now think of the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next worst thing. Anybody still with me? I've asked people in Ceausescu's Romania and underground schools during that oppressive regime, nobody got to more than ten. I've asked it in Sudan, teaching to southern Sudanese, all of whom seen relatives hacked to death by the Janjaweed. Nobody got to more than 10. Maybe you could get to 20 or 30. But think of all the good things that have happened in your life. But in the midst of it, go back to those bad things. How many of you, given time, saw some of those bad things produce some good in your life? How many? Raise your hand if you saw good ever come of a bad thing you experienced. Virtually all of you. If that's true, if given time you saw good come from some of the bad, then that means given eternity, you have good reason to believe good could come from all of it. But the next time you're in the midst of a crisis, you have no good reason for saying no good could ever come from this because your own experience counts against it. If you complain that way, though, that's okay. We're going to give you lots of patience because that's what Jesus gave John when he was complaining and struggling. But don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. In the midst of crumbling economic security and financial doubt, you may be given opportunity to make a more accurate assessment of what really matters in life if these things fall away. Tim Hansel, in his book, You Gotta Keep Dancing, said, if you're putting your hope in anything that can be taken from you, you're setting yourself up for some kind of disappointment. This will be a discovery worth making even in the hour of your death or the loss of your health. I had cancer several years ago. It gave me a chance to just center down and evaluate what was really important. John's life teaches us that. A hero of the faith and unafraid to look and evaluate and see things as they are. He was the greatest born of a woman, but he struggled. It validates all who share in various kinds of struggle, yet he was a hero because he knew where to turn when the crisis occurred Hebrews 13 5 I love this verse I'll never leave you nor forsake you I remember when I was a seminarian there's nobody more dangerous than a seminarian with a Greek New Testament in his hands but I was surprised to discover there are five negatives in those two phrases if my students turn in a paper with double negatives in a sentence they're going to get it back with so many red marks on it it's going to look like it was bleeding to death But in Greek grammar, you can do it for emphasis, and it actually says, I will not, I will not leave you. I will not, I will not forsake you. Actually, I will not, I will not, I will not forsake you. Five negatives. The point is clear. I remember once growing up in LA, I worked one summer at a department store, and I went down to the Orange Julius. Are they still even around, Orange Juliuses? And I got a hot dog and a uh, orange juice, and I saw this little boy walking down the street, two years old, about, and that's how two-year-olds walk down the street like this, right? Holding on to each of his parents' hands. There were big curbs at that place, and a big curb was coming up, and for this two-year-old boy, it might as well have been the Grand Canyon. His eyes were big as saucers as he saw it. His hands on his parents were not secure, but his parents had tight hold of him. When he came to that curb, He just lifted up his legs and made a game of it as his parents swung him over the curb. We look at things, and to us, they look like the Grand Canyon. The cry of our heart goes out to God. The struggle is revealed. And in that moment, we find as we trust God in the midst of the struggle, it's no more than just a curb for him. And like John, we learn That we may seek to be heroes in our faith, we may struggle, but we're secure in him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the life of John the Baptist, and thank you for preserving in your word an honest depiction of the kinds of lives that we live day by day. Successful in one moment, falling on our face in the other. We worship you for the love that you give us that is constant and uncompromising, even though it may reveal different faces to us. In the moment of our lapses and our fears and our questions and our doubts, when we fall flat on our face, you will not abandon us, but neither will you let us stay there. We thank you for a love that sometimes reproves and disciplines. We thank you for a love that nurtures. We thank you for a love that cultivates and develops we thank you for a love that will not will not leave us and will not will not will not forsake us give us grace to learn from john the baptist this hero of the faith And we pray this in christ's name amen